All right, well, good morning. Uh, my name is Brian Padgett. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at Redeemer Church, and I just want to thank you so much for, for joining us uh, here online. Um, we normally meet at 1 o'clock out at Couch Park, um, and this Sunday, because it's too cold, we're here, and next Sunday is looking like it's also going to be too cold because the North Pole decided to come down to Oklahoma. So uh, most likely we'll be online again next week, uh, but if that all changes, follow our social media accounts and we'll keep you up to date. Uh, last, or a couple weeks ago, we began a series in 1 Corinthians, and, and we'll be in this, uh, this book really the whole year. Uh, we're kind of breaking it out throughout the year, so we'll have other sermon series kind of throughout in the middle of it, uh, but this will be the primary focus of what we're doing. And uh, in order to understand uh, the rest of 1 Corinthians, uh, what we looked at last week in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verses 1-9, through 9, uh, the, the introduction here, uh, is really crucial to understanding what Paul's writing in the rest of the letter. And so I just want to kind of give a quick refresher for those of you that missed it or those of you who were there last week and have forgotten. Um, the primary thrust of those first nine verses uh, that Paul is kind of setting the stage for this whole letter uh, is that there's this, this phrase that Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it's important that we understand the lordship of Jesus Christ because uh, everything that Paul is writing in this Corinthian letter, and even this, the letter, the second Corinthian letter that we have, um, centers around this lordship of Jesus and not just understanding, oh, Lord, Jesus is Lord over everything. He's sovereign over everything. He's the, he's the ruler over everything. But he's really trying to address how do we live as a people from among all the peoples, from different ethnic tribes, from different ethnicities, different tribes, different languages, uh, different skin colors, all that stuff, male, female, rich, poor, how do we live together under the lordship of Jesus Christ? That's what Paul's dealing with in this letter. And a lot of what's going on in this letter, there are theological things. Paul is definitely, uh, most of his letters, there's a, uh, a theological uh, structure that he goes, and usually the way he writes is he writes very heavy on the front end of his letters, kind of the theological uh, aspects of the gospel message. And in the back half, he deals with kind of the practical outworkings of that, right? So this is what we believe. This is what it looks like in our life. Well, in the Corinthian letter, he doesn't do that as much. He kind of gets right to it. And, and really what you're going to see is that most of what Paul is addressing in his Corinthian letter here isn't as much theological as it is sociological and ethical. Um, it's going to do with how do we live together as one people under the banner of one Lord, Jesus Christ, that God himself, as he says in verse 9, that God who is faithful has called you, called me into fellowship with, this, with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. He uses that phrase. But in verse 2, he says this, that we've also been called to be saints together with people everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and our Lord. And what Paul does right out of the gate in 1 Corinthians, he's setting the stage for everything he's talking about. That your first and foremost call of God is to call you into fellowship. And this don't hear like what we think of fellowship today is like we're just kind of sitting around eating. That's not what's going on here. You are called into full participation and partnership with Jesus Christ. You are being united with him, You're like a married couple being united. That's the word that's going on there in fellowship. That our first and foremost call is to Christ Jesus, the Lord. We're now in fellowship and partnership, united with Christ Jesus, our Lord. But not only are we united with the triune God through Jesus Christ, we are also in Christ now, united to one another 
And that being everyone in every place in every language who calls on the name of the Lord, both their Lord and our Lord. And why that's so important is because as Paul's going to deal with, uh, in the first four chapters, division in the church, it's going to be extremely important to come back to that because division is the exact opposite of united with Christ and united with one another. And why that's so important, because if you read Paul's letter here, he's going to deal with division, but he's also going to deal with sexual morality. He's going to deal with greed. He's going to deal with idolatry. He's going to deal with this kind of boasting and elevating of ourselves because of certain gifts that people have, this division that's caused in the church there too. Uh, He's going to deal with all these things, and then he's even going to deal with the fact that people are questioning whether the resurrection's even important to believe in. Those are all extremely important issues. But the reason that Paul starts with division is not because he's got like this list of things and he's going, okay, just pick one and let's go. No, that's not what Paul's doing. Paul is in fact starting with division because in starting with division, what Paul is saying is that if this happens, if the church is divided, you don't have a gospel message anymore because you're going to empty the gospel of its power. Not that the gospel is actually emptied of its power as it's dependent on us. What it's basically saying is that a church that's divided, if the body of Christ is ripped to shreds and divided, it is useless, it is not doing anything, and all these other issues really don't matter. They don't matter as much anymore because you have no voice. You don't get to speak to sexual morality and you don't get to speak to uh, greed and idolatry and stuff because who are you? And so this is extremely important that we understand this unity that we have in Christ, and because we have that unity under the lordship of Jesus Christ, we have a unity with one another, and that one another is people everywhere, he says, in every place that calls on the name of our Lord, both their Lord and ours. So as we jump into verses 10 through 17, Some of these verses are going to sound very familiar. If you've grown up in church, you've heard this. You've heard people talk about this. Now, when we talk about division in the church in America, I don't know that we deal with it in the realest sense, okay? So here's what I mean. When I've heard this message growing up, maybe you're the same way, usually what it's talked about is some church where they had a church split over the color of the curtains or the carpet. Um... That's important. But let's be honest with ourselves. Does anyone really think that a church actually split over carpet? That's, a, that's absurd. Like, can we just own that one? Like, that's just dumb to even say. Nobody, if, if that's the case, I mean, how petty are we? Now you say, oh, you don't understand people are that petty. Uh-huh. I think that the carpet probably is the last straw. Like, there's probably a whole lot of other things that are underlying there that created that as the, oh, well, we can't do this. We can't do this. There's usually a whole lot of other things, and usually it's a power play. It's you don't like the fact that these people have all the power and have all the control, and your voice wasn't heard. That's usually what it is, but we don't want to deal with that. So we deal with these superficial things. And why I'm bringing this up is because that stuff's easy to correct. We can do this with behavior modification. I hear this stuff all the time. I mean, just this week, you know, I heard a story about someone that someone in this church posted something online, and the the, the pastor, hey, you got to take that down. Okay, we took it down, but, and it was a bad thing to post, but it's like, did we actually deal with the heart or did we just modify the behavior? So you can keep all that, just don't do stuff like this very publicly. 
And it's extremely problematic because what it does is it never deals with the true things that are causing division. It's never dealing with true heart issues. We're just kind of behavior modifying. We just want to kind of give this appearance that, hey, 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 we all get along. And so we do that as the church. And one of the ways we do that is prayer meetings. There's nothing more unifying than a good old prayer meeting, an ecumenical prayer meeting in a town. And this happens all the time. So we'll say, hey, we need to unify. Here's the one thing we can unite on is prayer. I would argue that's probably one of the last things you should unite on. Now you say, well, that doesn't make any sense. This sound, sounds really bad. Like we should be able to unite around prayer. Yeah, we should be able to unite around prayer. The problem with this is that Matthew 5 tells us that he talks about Jesus says, you've heard it in your, you know, do not murder. He says, if, I, if you hate your brother, if you say, Raka, you know, you've, commit, you've murdered him in your heart, basically. But then Jesus goes on and he says this. He says, if you go to the altar to worship and there you remember your brother has something against you, he says, leave your gift at the altar. First, go be reconciled to your brother, then come back and offer your gift, then come back and worship. To start with prayer and the assumption that God is actually okay with us coming to him, sitting in a room while never actually addressing the issues that divide us and distort us and, and spread us apart and everything else, while never dealing with the actual issues of, of pain and hurt and abuse and everything else that's gone on, to sit in a room and pray together to God as a unifying act, that is just superficial stuff. Man, it's completely possible that God isn't listening to any of those prayers. And that's terrifying. And this may sound like I'm being harsh. This may sound like I'm being unfair, but I want you to see what's going to go on here. Because this division, you're going to see this over the next few weeks, it is really, really important. And, it, it, and I think we've got to be honest with ourselves. If we look at the church in America, this is, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. He ain't writing to this church in Corinth. He's writing to the church in Corinth. Paul does not see, nor does the Bible for that matter. The Bible doesn't look at Stillwater, Oklahoma and say, oh, there's 50 churches there and they're dis distinct. No, no, no. God sees Stillwater and says there's a church in Stillwater, Oklahoma. But if you look at the church in Stillwater, Oklahoma, she's extremely divided. There's little unity at all. Little unity at all. I've been here for five years. Now, I went to school here. I was here for six years, not all six in school, uh, though there wouldn't be anything wrong with that if I did. But I wasn't here for all six years in college, but I was here for six years, left, came back. I've been here for now in May. It'll be six years again. So about 12 years of my adult life, okay, that I've lived in Stillwater, Oklahoma. When I was here as a student, you go ask any former student, anyone that was in college my time, anyone that's past that's still, that's out of school now, that's living here again or whatever, they will tell you Hands down, the church in Stillwater is not united. They don't get along. They don't do stuff together. Now, you say, oh, no, 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 some churches do stuff together. I get that. Some churches do do stuff together. But just doing stuff together doesn't mean we're actually united. There are stark divisions between the church here in Stillwater. Now, we are reflective of the church in America. We're not just a, an isolated kind of incident here. This is an a, a ongoing issue that is reflected out throughout our entire country. And we're going to talk more about that here, but I want to jump in. I want to read the first uh, couple of verses here of our text today. I want you to see what, where Paul is going and what he's doing. He says, I appeal to you, brothers. This is verse 10. By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. 
What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Now, let's stop there. Now, some of you have heard this before. We quote this all the time. Well, yo, we're so divided. I follow Chandler. I follow Piper. I follow Craig Rochelle. I follow Stephen Furtick. I follow that, you know, oh, yeah, this is Phil Murray. So we, we say this, we, we quote this, but it's not entirely the same thing that we have today. Now, it is, uh, and you'll hear that, but it's a lot more that's going on. Now, I want to start off where Paul starts off. So he gets done saying, verse 9, God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Remember, I said this last week, the hardest part of the Christian faith, the hardest part for any human being to follow Christ is to submit to him as Lord. We love the idea of him being a savior. We love the idea of someone rescuing us. We love the idea of someone delivering us. We hate the idea that someone has authority over us. We hate the idea that someone has lordship over us. Someone has mastery over us. We hate that. We are free Americans. Nobody tells us what to do. And this is so ironic when you see people, you know, in politics and everything else, like, we're free Americans. We have rights. And then as soon as they say, but Jesus is my Lord, it's like, well, which one is it? Because if you, if you believe that Jesus is your Lord, all your rights and freedoms have been surrendered to him as Lord. Or else, what are you talking about? He's just a mascot. We love to just chant, Jesus is Lord. But do you know what that means for you? It means that you are saying a, a cosmic statement that he is the one supreme ruler of all things. He is the one who tells us how to live our lives and we are going to gladly and willfully submit to his will and way. When you believe that Jesus Christ is who he says he is, this is not problematic for us because you believe then that he is truly and holy what we were supposed to be but sin took from us, sin destroyed us, our rebellion took away, but he has restored in himself by his death on the cross and his resurrection and the Holy Spirit who's at work in each of those people that believe in Jesus Christ and call upon him as Lord, he is conforming them to the image of the Son who is the perfect image of God and restoring in us the very image that we were creating in, thus making you a whole, complete, truly perfect human being. But we don't want Jesus to tell us what to do. But look what he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's appeal to the family, he calls them brothers, calls them sisters. I'm with you guys. We're called to be together saints. We all call on the name of the Lord, right? We're buddies in this. We're family in this. He says, I appeal to you according to the authority of Christ and his lordship. I'm appealing to you by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. What? that all of you agree. Now, my guess is you hear that, you read that, and you're like, um, I don't think so, Paul. <laughs> we don't all have to agree on everything. So is that what Paul's saying? Is Paul saying we have to agree on everything? Meaning, let's go back to the carpets, right? We're gonna disagree over the carpets. So we can't put any carpet in until everybody agrees on the carpet color. This is what Paul's saying, right? We all have to agree on the carpet color. We all have to agree on everything. No, that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is not getting into the petty uh, bushes here of going, no, 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 you got to agree on every single thing. That's what we're supposed to do. He's not talking about uniformity. He's talking about unity. There's a big difference. This phrase that all of you agree, literally translated, is that you speak the same thing. You say the same thing. Now, what does that mean? 
What does Paul mean? What are are we saying the same thing about? Now look at verse 12 where he says, this is what he says, each one of you says, right, I follow Paul, I follow Cephas, I follow Apollos, others I follow Christ. What Paul is referencing here is he's referencing their allegiances, okay? Now the ESV translates this poorly, I think. They say, I follow Paul. The actual phrasing should be, I belong to. Right? In a sense, I, I have allegiance to. I belong to this person. I'm united with this person. I have partnership with Paul. I have partnership with Cephas or Apollos. Now they're talking identity. It's starting to be tribal. It's starting to be kind of these party lines that are drawn. And what they're saying is that, no, Paul's the superior voice. No, Peter's the superior voice. No, Apollo is. And they're all seeking the more superior one. When they latch on to them and they belong to them, they're saying, this one is superior over all the others. If you're following one of these, you're not following the right one. You're not of the superior choice, which would be Paul or Paulus or Peter or, or the other saying Jesus, which would be the accurate one. So what he's saying is that I'm saying that all of you agree is that we should all be able to say the same thing. We have one allegiance and it's to the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't have allegiance to Paul. You don't have allegiance to Peter. You don't have allegiance to Apollos. You don't have allegiance to America. You don't have allegiance to uh, your party, your political party. You don't have allegiance to anything else but Jesus Christ. Now you can say, well, no, what you're saying, I can't pledge allegiance. I'm saying you need to probably be very careful what you pledge allegiance to. Because to have full allegiance to one thing is to submit yourself to that person as the superior one, that Jesus Christ alone is supreme. He alone is superior. And listen, there's not one culture, not one color of skin, not one socioeconomic status, not one gender out there that has claim on Jesus Christ. He is supra all those things. He comes in and changes and conforms and brings those into submission to his kingdom purposes, his will and his way. What he is saying is that you all agree is that we all agree on the one thing that he's just said, I appeal to you by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what we all agree on. I follow Christ Jesus the Lord. I belong to Christ Jesus the Lord. I don't belong to Paul. I don't belong to Peter. I don't belong to Apollos. I don't belong to the Baptist church. I don't belong to this church. I don't belong to that denomination. I don't belong to this thing. I belong to Jesus Christ, our Lord. That is first and foremost in all of it. That's what we're supposed to agree on. That's what we say the same thing about. Now look at what he says, that all of you agree. And then he goes on to say that there be no divisions, no divisions among you but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Now, what does he mean by same mind and same judgment? Paul uses this phrase, same mind, a lot. In in Philippians, he uses it. Later in 1 Corinthians 3, I think verse 16, he'll say it again, uh, that we, he he goes, who can know the mind of Christ? But he says, but we do have the mind of Christ. We all share the mind of Christ. Well, that refers back to Philippians 2. In Philippians 2, Paul tells them, Do not be conceited. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Think of others as better than yourself, more significant than yourself. And then he says, have this mind in you that is the mind of Christ. And right before that, he says that we should be of the same mind. And then he tells us what that means. Have the mind of Christ in you. He then goes on to talk about the humility of Christ that he didn't consider equality with God, something to be grasped, but he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. And then God exalted him to the highest place so that at the end, every knee on earth, every, every knee in heaven on earth and under the earth and everything else will bow its knee before Christ and glorify him and praise him. God has exalted him to the highest place. He is King Jesus. But that mind 
of the same mind. It is talking about that we have the same mind that the one true gospel is the thing that we, we're, we're gonna meditate on and we're gonna love God with all our minds. We're gonna take in this glorious good news, but he's dealing more with our attitude here. What he's saying is that there, for there to be no division among you, you've gotta have the same mind and that same mind is a mind of humility. And, and I'm gonna say this again next week and I'm gonna say it here right now. The church in America is too full of herself to have that kind of unity right now. We lack that humility. We can't be wrong about anything. When we are, we have to try to sweeten it up a little bit, cute it up a little bit so it's not so bad. We've done some offensive, horrific things in this country. We've been complicit in it. We have aided and abetted it at times. It still goes on to this day, many different things. The church is not united. She is divided in this country. She has been probably since the founding. And we are way too full of ourselves to be united through humility. Because what that would have to mean is this, that we see other churches, other brothers and sisters in town, in this city and across the land, as more significant than ourselves, both individually and corporately to humble ourselves, to become obedient to them, to serve them, to love them, to do what Jesus did for us, lay down our rights and our freedoms for the sake of building up a brother or sister in Christ or a whole community of them. When we moved here six years ago, I sat down with a lot of pastors and I, I tried to do some research and I would ask, tell me about the churches in town. And this was before I got here too. I was hearing this from people outside of Stillwater. This wasn't just in Stillwater. And the thing you would, I would most commonly hear, and I've, look, I'm gonna tell you right now, I've, I'm guilty, I've said this. And I'm gonna own that. But what I heard is it ranged anywhere from, there's only two healthy churches in town. I heard one pastor tell me that. To at most, I've heard like five or six. But usually it was in the three to four or five range. Imagine, imagine sitting down and someone saying, hey, tell me about the churches here in this city. And to say, there's only two or three healthy churches. Obviously, yours is one of them, right? I mean, like, nobody's gonna be the guy that's like, there's like four healthy churches, not us. We're not there. Like, we're just not healthy. Like, we're kind of, we're on the back end of this. Like, we're really unhealthy. But I can tell you, there's probably like three or four, yeah. I mean, now that, okay, that might be humble. Oh, that's honest. Okay, cool. So you're not one. No, man, we're not. We're cool with that. I mean, we're not cool with that, but I'm just going to tell you this straight up. No, they're one of those, right? What does that say? Now, we use the term healthy. What does that mean? Who gets to determine whether your church is healthy? You? Who? How do we know if a church is healthy? You could be healthy in these areas and glaringly unhealthy in these areas. And that's probably more accurate. But what happened to us? How did we get here? How did we get to this, to this place where <clears throat> we're determining for ourselves what's healthy? And then to say these other two or three are healthy too, what do you mean by that? Does that not speak the language of division? That doesn't sound like uniting. That doesn't sound like we all have one, we all have one allegiance to Jesus Christ. I differ with them and them on these things. 
I differ actually very strongly with them on those things, but not enough to separate me. They're brothers and sisters in Christ. There are some, listen, there is a, a sense in which we are a divisive people. You gotta understand the gospel itself is a divisive message. If there is a church that's not preaching the good news of Jesus Christ, if there's a church that has added to it or taken from it, that's not a church anymore. We know that biblically. The Bible would not even understand that to be a church. The foundation of any church has to be the gospel message. That's not up for debate. That's the truth. What we do, though, is we say, oh, well, they're kind of crazy. Oh, well, they're kind of this. Oh, well, they have a woman pastor over there, so they can't be Christian. Oh, they have this over there, so they can't be Christian. That's not, that, we got to be careful. That's arrogance. But the, as time has gone on, the divide has gotten stronger, and the pandemic's exposed those lines, and it's gotten stronger and darker and starker, and those divisions are getting bigger. Now, what's happening, some of these pettier divisions are kind of morphing together because they found a common enemy, so we can give up these for a little bit, and they're bolstering those things. And what's happening right now is the world around us, if you just have an ear to the ground just to listen to people who don't go to church, that don't want anything to do with the gospel or Jesus or anything else, they are not saying nice things about us. We are a mockery, and not only that, because of the great insurrection of January 6th, we've become a legitimate threat in this country, in their eyes. Now you say, well, we're not a threat. I'm not a threat. I have to go down with that ship. And we have to go down with that ship together. If we're gonna be united, we gotta be of the same mind. That same mind's the mind of Christ, a mind of humility, and it is going to be costly. The height that we're gonna have to fall from in order to humble ourselves is gonna cost us a lot along the way. I think we're in danger. But we also are to be of the same judgment. This word judgment is also will or purpose. When Jesus taught us to pray, he said, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's, that's the same judgment we're supposed to have, the same purpose, the same will that we are supposed to have. That your kingdom would come on the earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done on on the earth as it is in heaven. We're supposed to be of the same mind, the same judgment. We're to be a people about the kingdom of God, about reflecting God and his righteousness and his holiness and his justice and his mercy and his kindness and his grace and his, his love to the world. We're supposed to be a distinct people, an other that people would look to us and go, what's different about you? This is why I keep saying during the pandemic, God's lobbed us a softball and we've whiffed. We don't look any different than anybody else. We're all arguing for our rights and fighting for our freedoms and fighting for this. As if biblically, we have to meet only the way that the American church determined we have to meet. We're terrified of what might happen if all of a sudden these people leave our church and they never come back. What if? To be of the same mind, the same judgment. Paul goes on. He says it's reported. Now, listen, he's getting a report from Chloe's household. Now, here's the thing about Chloe's people, okay? Chloe's people, most likely what Chloe is is that she's a, a business leader of some sort there in Ephesus, okay? 
Um, and I said she because it's a she. It's a woman, and it's a business leader, and she's significant in the church, so just so everybody hears that. So Chloe has her people. What's happening? He's in Ephesus riding to Corinth. There's this water that they're going to have to go through, and they have this trade route. And Ephesus and Corinth had a big trade uh, a trade route that they, that they shared or whatever. So what's happening most likely is Chloe's people are doing business in Corinth too, and they're checking in on the church. They're probably going over there going, hey, these brothers and sisters, they're being a part of this. And they're coming back going, uh, Chloe, the, something's going on. These people are fighting over there. They are crazy mad at one another. And Chloe reports back to Paul and says, hey, there's something going on with your churches over there in Corinth. You might want to pay attention to this. We know from uh, 1 Corinthians 7 that the Corinthian church, probably through Chloe's people, sent a letter to Paul. They have some questions for him. Paul doesn't even want to address their questions. He doesn't address that till the middle of this book because he's so focused on the report that he's gotten from Chloe. One of the things that Chloe's gonna report also is that there's some guy there who's having intimate relationships with his stepmom and the church just doesn't care about it. And he's gonna wait, <laughs> so he's gonna address that in 1 Corinthians 5. Like I'm telling you, 1 Corinthians got some good stuff for us. They were a hot mess. Like that's why we titled this thing. But and this, Paul doesn't even get to their questions until 1 Corinthians 7. Now he didn't chapter these things, but that's the middle of his letter. He's going to deal with these bigger issues first. So Chloe's reported that there's fighting amongst them. There's strife. There's conflict. There's quarreling among the brothers. And he says, here's what it is. Some of you say, I follow Paul, or I belong to Paul. I belong to Apollos. I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. And we've addressed that already. And what they're saying is they're kind of pledging allegiance of sorts. That's the closest thing I have for us to understand here, is they're pledging allegiance to Paul. I'm all in with Paul. Paul is the one, and everything Paul says. And what they're becoming like is they're heroes in the faith. They're not becoming like Jesus, and that's scary. Because that's happening today, too. People today are mimicking and looking like their, their interpretation, mostly, of the heroes of the faith, and they're not becoming like Jesus Christ. They're anchoring down and creating divisions around what their boy said in 1500, while they're completely disassociating with the true Jesus Christ here, our Lord Jesus Christ, and what that means. They're disassociating with his body so that they can hold firm to what their hero said. That's a dangerous place to be in. This is where Corinth has gone. They are fighting. They are at one another's necks. They are warring with one another over this issue. And it has to do with their communication styles. All that. that stuff plays into this, but it's bigger than that. It's not just we prefer Paul and his preaching style. There's nothing wrong with having preference of preaching style. Some of you hate my preaching style. You love Tyler's or you love Kevin's more. That's great. We need a different type of, we don't need the same thing. I'm like the guy that wears everybody out for five weeks, and then you get three weeks to breathe with Tyler and Kevin or something, right? Everybody's got to, okay, everyone's exhaling with me, inhaling with me, but they get to exhale, and they find, okay, good, yeah. I get that. I understand that. We're just different people. That's not exactly what's going on here, though. You can prefer different styles. You can feel like you connect better with one. There's nothing wrong with that. That's not what's happening here. This isn't even a theological divide. It's not like Paul and Apollos and Peter are preaching different things. They're all preaching the gospel. So what's creating the division? Some of it was sociological. Some of it was like Apollos. Apollos was trained in the Greek rhetoric. If you don't know anything about Greek rhetoric, Greek persuasion, what they do, that was a highly sought-after talent. And Apollos could wow a crowd is what it seems like if you read the Acts account about Paul, Apollos. He was well-educated, well-trained in this. But Apollos is preaching the same gospel as Paul. We're going to see that in 1 Corinthians 3. Apollos isn't the problem. We are. Peter's not the problem. Paul's not the problem. The people following them are the problem. Because what they're doing is they're starting to look exactly like Corinth. 
where they would praise these certain people. They would rally around them. So when Paul says, I came humble to you, they're like, you're kind of a loser. You're, you're not the cool guy. You're supposed to come out with pomp and circumstance, put on a show for everybody, entertain everyone. Does that not sound like America? We do the same thing. And then we start making one more superior to the other. And over time, we form these tribes, these groups around. These, it could be personality. It could be whatever. But here you had high-class Corinth's Corinthians that were following the Apollos type. And you had the poor class starting to follow Paul maybe and these others because Paul worked with his hands and Paul did all these other things. And you start seeing it's not just a theological divide. There is that there, but it's often sociological and ethical. So Paul asks the question in verse 13, is Christ divided? We know the answer to that. No, he's not. But what you're doing is dividing Christ. If Christ is divided, we know from his own words in Matthew 12, when the Pharisees said, you have a demon in you, you're Satan. He's going, wait a minute. If I have a demon and I cast out a demon, does that not mean that Satan in his own house is against his own house? If that's true, then a house divided against itself cannot stand. It'll be destroyed. So we know from Jesus' own words in Matthew 12, if he is divided, it's worthless. What do you have to offer anybody? What does the church legitimately have to offer anyone in our society right now? You say, with the gospel message, uh-huh. And they're going to look at your churches and all the churches around and go, if that's what the gospel does, I don't want it. More and more saying that. This shouldn't shock us. This has been going on for like 30, 40 years. The irony is that it's happened at the same time we've had the church growth movement, which has mimicked corporate culture in America. The church growth movement, you study that and you study the rise of corporations, and there's not a whole lot that's different between them. So churches are getting really big, but it's, a, it's tricking us and lulling us to sleep thinking the gospel's on the move. Amazing things are happening. People are getting saved. No, people are getting saved in China and Africa and Latin America and at far higher clips than they are in the Western world. And that's been happening for half a century. Is Christ divided? Yes, here he is, and it's emptying the cross of its power. The message of the cross is losing its power because we're elevating these external things, these other things, these peripheral things, and it's causing wars and waging war against one another, and both individually and corporately. It's extremely problematic. So then Paul asks a couple rhetorical questions around himself. Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Why does he say this? We know the answer is no, right? But you ever hear that? Like, I mean, I, I remember being in Dallas, going to the Village Church, and people you know, say, oh yeah, I go to Chandler's Church. If you don't know who Matt Chandler is, he's the pastor of the Village Church. He's the president of Acts 29, which we're a part of. And I always remember hearing that. And I, I just, you know, back in my really snarky days, and maybe I'm still in them, I don't know. I would ask you like, well, did, did Matt die for you? What do you mean his church? You know, it's, it's always a good Jesus juke. I'm always good for those every once in a while. Jesus juked my wife the other night. She was like, you ever have one of those books where you just really love the character? Like, you, you just love it so much, and you hate it when it ends because you feel like you're missing all those people. I was like, yeah, I like the Bible. <laughs> you know, it's like, anyway, it's funny to me, and nobody's here to laugh with me. I think I heard Kevin laugh. Anyway, I'm over it. But the funny thing is, Paul wasn't crucified for them. Why are you boasting in me? Why are you pledging allegiance to me? I didn't die for you. Man, I just proclaimed Christ to you doesn't make me anything but a, a messenger of the cross. Like, that's all I am. I'm pointing you to Christ, not me. 
I wasn't baptized. You aren't baptized in my name. Why he says it that way is important. He doesn't just say, I'm glad that I didn't baptize you. He'll say that here in a second. He's like, I'm glad. He goes, were you baptized in my name? What is he saying here? The Great Commission says to baptize them into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That baptize, that word into means this, that when you're baptized, right? This is why baptism is so, so, so important. It's not something to just gloss over and flip out. You know, oh, I don't have to get baptized. I can die. The guy died on the cross. He went to heaven. No, no. Baptism is an expression of our union with Christ, with the triune God. We are baptized into the name of the Father, Son. That has to do with us being called into the fellowship of Christ. We're baptized into that. But we're not only baptized into the, the triune God, we're baptized into the body of Christ, the church. This is why we hold that the baptism needs to happen in the context of a local church and not flippantly out there wherever else. You are baptized into the body of Christ. In March, we're gonna have a baptism class. We're gonna have a celebration Sunday. We're gonna do baptisms. If you've never been baptized or you were baptized and you're not sure if you should have been baptized, you're not sure at all about baptism, Plan to sign up for that class and then plan to get baptized if you want to get baptized. We're happy to have that conversation with you. You'll hear more about it in the coming weeks. Baptism's important, but they weren't baptized into Paul's name. So look at what he says. I thank God I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may, uh, no one may say that they were baptized in my name. Now, here's a really funny thing that Paul does. Paul's writing this and he's dictating it to a writer, perhaps even Stephanus. Because whatever happens, Paul's saying, hey, I baptized Crispus and Gaius. And all of a sudden, he goes, and then parentheses, like this kind of added in there. Uh, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. Stephanus is brought up at the end of the Corinthian letter and his household. It's very possible that he's the one writing this on Paul's behalf. But I'm curious if he's there, if Paul's kind of reading this and they're going, uh, hey, Paul, you baptized my whole household. He's like, okay, fine, add that in there, right? And I love that this gets left there because this is Paul just writing He's dictating this to them. Paul's not worried about all this perfection. Like, oh, they didn't have whiteout and they weren't gonna get out another piece of paper and write the whole thing again. But Paul says, okay, add this in there. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. He probably did, but he doesn't remember. And that's that. But he says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now, we're going to end here with that verse. We're going to start there next week with that verse because that's a huge transitional verse there, what's going on. Paul is not saying, let me be very clear here. Paul is not downplaying baptism at all. When Paul says, God called me to preach the gospel and not to baptize, he knows the Great Commission, okay? He knows that you're called to make disciples and baptize them. But Paul, as an apostle, as one who was sent under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ to go proclaim this gospel message, to lay the foundation for the church, understood that it was not his job to do all that. Paul did not have this air about him of like, well, I'm the apostle Paul. I will preach to you. I will disciple you. I will baptize you. I will preach to you. I will do everything for you. No, no. He's coming in to establish the church, develop and establish leadership in the church so that the church would make disciples baptizing and teaching them to obey. And Paul moves on. What Paul is basically saying here is, hey, look, 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 look. You, you don't need Paul or Peter or Apollos to baptize you. If they happen to baptize you, they just happen to baptize you. Any brother or sister that's in Christ that calls upon the name of the Lord can baptize you. That's why we don't hold here that only the elders can baptize you. You can say, hey, I would like for my, my friend or someone who's been mentoring me in the faith to, to baptize. I'd like for this person to baptize. We'll have that. Yeah, we can do that. 
I know there are churches that say, oh, well, you haven't been properly baptized. You've got to be properly baptized with a proper administrator. There's no biblical foundation for that. It's just a, a philosophy that people have. Fine. That's what they do over there. I don't care. But don't say that's gospel truth. That everyone has to do this. That's not what this is saying. Paul's even saying, I was called to preach the gospel, not to baptize. The church is called to baptize. It, do you hear that? Paul, the apostle Paul didn't go around going, my job is to make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them. That is his job. But how he's doing that is he's preaching the gospel message of Jesus Christ. He's laying the foundation for the church who is going to be established as a kingdom outpost in those cities so that disciples can be made, baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that Christ has commanded them. Yes, Paul's doing that, but he's not doing it individualistically. He's doing it collectively through the church as well. That's the point there. Now, the bigger things, he says, I didn't preach the gospel with eloquent words of wisdom, with eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. We're going to hit that one bigger next week. So I'm not going to expound on this right now, but you've got to hear what Paul's saying here. I didn't come in with a lot of pizzazz and flash and big lofty words and lofty ideas and all these other things because he didn't want to empty the cross of Christ of its power. What is the power of the cross of Christ? Of the cross of Christ? It's not in big words. Paul was persuasive. He's not saying don't be persuasive. What Paul is saying is the gospel doesn't need your additives. He doesn't need your climbing walls and your, you know, your PlayStation 5s and everything else in your church. He doesn't need your fancy you know, smokes and screens and everything else. If you do that, that's fine. Leave that for what it is. But if you think you need that to see people's lives changed by the gospel, then you don't know the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel needs nothing with it. it needs nothing. Jesus didn't come with a bunch of flair himself. The gospel message is the power of God to change lives. Do you believe that? Do we believe that? Now, I want to end with just some questions here because I want us to wrestle with some things because we are extremely divided as a country. We're extremely divided as a church in this country. We're extremely divided in this city. And I'm going to be real honest with you. We're guilty of that. Like, Redeemer's not off the hook here. We have to own it. I have to own it. My language has been divisive. I understand that. I'm owning that right now very publicly. I hate it. I'm trying to go, okay, Lord, search me and know me. Where is there this division? We have division in our churches. We have it across racial disparities. We have it across economic. We have, there are divisions, a whole host of divisions, the things that divide the church in America. And we have them individually too. So let me ask you some questions to think about. Who has something against you today? Who have you offended? Who have you hurt? Or who do you have something against today? Who's hurt you or offended you? Are you in fellowship with a local church? And listen, I do not mean attendance, but fellowship. It's much, much deeper than just showing up. If not, why not? Are you guilty of idolizing certain preachers or theologies or ideologies or denominations or tribes of Christians? Do you think you are more superior to others because of who you've learned from, sat under, or some education status that you have? 
Do you associate with the lowly, as Romans 12 and 16 tells us to? Do you have any fellowship with the poor, the marginalized, minorities, or international students and families represented here? Why not? If you don't have these things, why not? What is, what is, what is causing us to only associate with people in our stage of life or our economic condition or our uh, way of life or whatever? What, what is going on here? We have one allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. We should say the same thing. If any brother or sister in town calls on the name of the Lord, who is also our Lord, we have fellowship. We are called to be saints together. If in the process of that we find out there are people that are not really in the Lord Jesus Christ, fine. But our default should be, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. That's our default. And that's going to come up in 1 Corinthians 13. I, I know that's the big love chapter, and everyone thinks it's about weddings. It's not. That believe all things means we're going to give you the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to assume the best about you. When you tell me you believe the Lord Jesus Christ and you go to this church, and I've kind of been curious about this church, I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt that you call upon the name of the same Lord that I call upon. We need to agree. We need to be of the same humble mind. Humility is the way forward. These questions are a call to humility. See, the great thing about being in Jesus Christ is we get to confess where we're wrong and we don't get beat up for it. We're no longer condemned. We get to confess and repent and look, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And part of that means this, repairing relationships. What are relationships that need to be repaired? Individually, but also corporately. And will you with me pray that God would break whatever this evil, haughty spirit is that the church has engrossed itself with, that he would break us of that and rid us of that, that we would be truly a people who are humble, who move toward one another in humility, seeing the other as better than ourselves, <clears throat> laying down our interests, our rights, and everything for the sake of brotherhood and sisterhood. Would you pray those things with me? Our only hope is the Lord Jesus Christ. We have fellowship with him because God is faithful and called us into that fellowship. But we also have fellowship with one another on, with everyone everywhere who calls on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you believe this Jesus Christ? And if you do, then let him do the work of purging from your life the things that are anti-Christ, that do not reflect him. And division has to be one of those. And if you don't believe him this morning, man, that gift is yours. It's available. He offers himself fully and freely to you for all who would believe in Jesus Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you love your church more than we ever will. That, Lord, you are grieved. I think that you are grieved. I, I hear Paul saying, don't grieve the spirit of God. And I think we've grieved your spirit, Lord. Lord, I just want to confess my own guilt, my own uh, complicity in division and divisiveness, Lord. I have had a very haughty view. I have literally said the words from the pulpit even. That there are churches in this town, and, and there are, I know there's churches in this town that don't hold to the gospel, but Lord, I know what's going on in my mind. I have a list of churches in this town that I have written off because they don't sound like us, and that is sinful and wretched and does not honor you one bit. Lord, have mercy on me. And I know I'm not alone. God, would you crush this evil, haughty spirit that is over your church right now? Would you rip it to shreds? Expose us, Lord. Do what you have to do. 
to tear apart these divisions because your body is not divided, Jesus. The body of Christ is not divided. So when we are, we are threatening the very gospel message we claim to, to believe, the very message that people need to hear but can't hear over the loudness of all the clatter of our peripheral, secondary, tertiary issues that we fight and argue over and kill each other over. Lord, have mercy on us, an undeserving people. We do not deserve your grace and your kindness, but we ask you for it because we know that in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation for those who are in him. But Lord, you do not leave us as we are. We are profaning your name. Would you act for your great namesake, O oh God? And in your great mercy, Lord, would you transform us? Do the hard, painful work, Lord, of humbling us and uniting us. In Jesus' name I pray.